Our reading for today is Psalm 31. Listen now for the word of the Lord. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. You are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, I want to just remind you again, uh, we have our last uh, Lenten FG uh, following the service and lunch. And so uh, even if you haven't been to any yet, uh, I want to invite you to uh, join us uh, for that. Um, today, as you know, uh, is Palm Sunday. Uh, but because many people uh, in our culture now uh, don't attend uh, a Good Friday service, many churches don't have Good Friday services anymore, uh, we kind of skip out an entire uh, Holy Week, um, people go from the kind of the celebration of a Palm Sunday service to Easter and the joy of Easter. And we kind of 
skipped the entire Passion Week and even the crucifixion of Friday. And so some churches have moved from a liturgy of the palms today to a liturgy of the passion as a way of trying to remind people uh, the importance. While we have the joy and anticipation of Easter coming up, that we cannot forget the cross of Friday that makes that Easter joy possible. And so with that, I want to just invite all of you and remind you that we will have a Good Friday service this Friday, beginning at 7 o'clock. So this year, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we've done before. Instead of having a service beginning at 7, we are going to have a Stations of the Cross service. And so we are asking you to come Anywhere between 7 and 8. So, in fact, I don't want all of you to come at 7. So, come sometime between 7 and 8, and we're asking you to come in through the College Ave entrance. So, park as usual, but come in through those doors over there, okay? And then you'll be given instructions what to do. But the idea is when you come through those doors, you will walk to eight different stations, and you will kind of walk through the steps that Christ walked through on Good Friday. And so we're inviting you to come anywhere between 7 to 8 and just walk through the stations at your own pace. And so please come uh, and make Good Friday a part of your weekly uh, service, especially uh, this time. And feel free to bring your children um, and to walk the stations together as a family. And so again, I just want to encourage you all to come uh, this Friday. Uh, beginning at 7, anytime between 7 and 8, and walk the stations and really kind of, kind of meditate. Um, and, and we're trying to do the stations a little bit differently. It's not going to be a sermon, but um, if you want to think of it as the sensate pathway, uh, we want to give you an opportunity to kind of really try to feel um, the sights, the smells, the tastes um, of what Good Friday may have been like a little bit. So I'm very excited about the service. A lot of people have been really working hard on it to make it uh, hopefully something that will stick with us and be a reminder uh, of what Good Friday and uh, Easter is all about. Uh, All right, Uh, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for this day, uh, the beginning of Holy Week, as we anticipate uh, Good Friday and Easter. Uh, We thank you for who you are and for what you have done for us that makes our lives possible. And now in the hearing of your word, God, would you both challenge and encourage us? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Psalm 31 is probably not one of your top ten psalms. Um, So it might surprise you, as it surprised me this week, that it is actually assigned nine times in the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, As far as I can tell, that's the second most occurrence of any passage in the Bible, only behind Psalm 119, uh, which is assigned 10 times. But when Psalm 31 is assigned, it's only a part of the psalm that gets assigned. Now, we heard the entire psalm today, but whenever it's assigned, it's only a chunk that gets assigned. So today, for example, only verses 9 through 16, that the middle part of the psalm was assigned. And in other weeks... Only the beginning or the end or the beginning and the end are assigned. And so when they cut up the psalm in this sort of way, the psalm can have a very different meaning than when you hear the entire psalm 
together. So, for example, if we only heard Psalm uh, 31 verses 9 through 16, you would get the sense the psalm is only about lament and nothing more. And that's why it's assigned to this particular week, because it's the beginning of the Passion Week, and so we want to think about what it means to lament. Um, Or if you read some of the other parts, you would get the sense that the psalm is about something very different. Maybe it's a psalm of thanksgiving or a psalm of praise. But by hearing all of it, we get to see that it's much more complicated, that it's more than just uh, one particular genre of prayer, that it is you know, uh, a combination of all these different prayers uh, that we find in the Psalms. And so this particular psalmist has experienced the rejection, exclusion, grief, betrayal, even schemes against his life. He's not only physically broken, but he's socially outcast and emotionally exhausted. Now, scholars have pointed out the psalm defies standard categorizations into any particular genre because, in a, in a sense, when someone is going through this kind of trauma, it's hard to be very neat and clear about what your prayers are. It is very mixed. It is a violation of the categories because it speaks to the depth of pain and parallels the confusion and the trauma that this psalmist is going through. He's under incredible duress. He's filled with despair. He's been forgotten by friends as if dead already. He feels useless like a broken vessel. But in verse 14, he cries out, But, but I will trust in you, O Lord. And from there, he moves then on to thanksgiving, and he testifies and encourages us then to be strong and to let our hearts take courage. I think the beauty of this psalm for me is that it is true to the life of faith. This is not a sanitized prayer of some unrelatable saint living in the monasteries. It is a life, it is a faith struggling to make sense and lived out in the real world with all of its difficulties and struggles as any one of us might. But in the middle of that struggle, he finds a way somehow to say, but. Despite my circumstances, but I will trust in the Lord. It's easy to say, you know, my life's going great and I trust the Lord. That doesn't require much, if any, faith. But to proclaim, my life is falling apart, but I trust the Lord. That's faith. And that's when you need faith. Surrounded by shame, by horror, by terror, scorn, dread, contempt, can we still cry out, but I still trust the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, about a year before he died in a concentration camp, right before the end of World War II, wrote this letter to a friend. He said, I discovered later, and I'm still discovering up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. By this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures, experiences and perplexities. In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own suffering, but those of God in the world, watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, 
is faith. I think, you know, that's what I'm still trying to discover. To live unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures, experiences and perplexity. And in so doing, throw myself completely, completely into the arms of God. And I think that's something that's, that's very hard to do and that's something that we often forget. Frederick uh, Schleiermacher um, said this about religion. He said, religion is the feeling of absolute dependence. That's the only thing I ever read by him. The feeling of absolute dependence. That's what the psalmist and Bonhoeffer understood. We're usually too prideful to be utterly dependent on anyone or anything. We strive instead toward utter independence and would rather depend on ourselves only than to depend on others to get things done. Most of us hate the feeling of depending on someone or owing someone anything. I was reminded this week of a song uh, Paul Simon wrote back in 1965 called I Am a Rock. It contains these lyrics. I've built walls, a fortress steep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Despite the lyrics, it's it's a pretty good catchy tune. Um, Now, that's independence taken to an extreme, right? I'm going to avoid everyone. I'm not going to depend on anyone. I'm not going to let anyone hurt me. I mean, it's one way of avoiding pain and betrayal and heartbreak. I suppose you could try to kind of just detach yourself from everyone and be a rock unto yourself. But most people know that this just is not possible. It doesn't work. John Don taught us years, centuries ago, no man is an island entire of itself. And so people then look for other things to place their dependence on. Um, My wife and I recently saw the movie um, Shazam. Um, I grew up watching the TV show uh, when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love YouTube because I, I got to watch the, the, the opening uh, theme for it, the, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I enjoyed this. Um, so I, I persuaded my wife to relive my childhood memories with me, and so she didn't want to see it, but um, she came with me. Um, you know, it actually got very well reviewed by critics and audiences, and so, you know, and I have a pretty low bar when it comes to movies, so I thought, okay, this is, and man, it was terrible. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was just, oh man. Um, Again, I know a lot of people liked it, but, um, but you know, the the theme of the movie, and this isn't giving anything away in case you want to see it, um, it's about the importance of family, right? That's, That's what the movie's about. Uh, This is not a critique of the movie, but, but in two of the scenes, you know, the family's sitting around the dinner table, and the dad says, you know, put it in there. And you know, everyone puts their hand into the middle of the table. And they, and they thank. Uh, they're, they're thankful for each other, for the family. And they're thankful for the food they're about to eat. And the, right? And, and as I watched, and I'm sitting there and I thought, you know, who are they thanking? Because they, they, they'll go, like, thank you for the food. Thank you for the family. And then I wanted to say, amen, but there's no amen coming, right? Um, it was an offering of thanks offered to no one. They were just being thankful, uh, you know, to fate, to life, I don't know. Or, really, they were being thankful 
to one another for their family. For them, it's the family that has come for them to have that utter dependence. It's the family that will save you when you're in trouble. That's what they discover. Now, that's not a bad theme as far as the theme for a movie goes. But your family cannot ultimately save you. They can't. We all come to a place in our lives when our own strength and the strength of our family, no matter how good, is not enough. Most of us are old enough now to have been brought to that point when families are not enough. When our own strength is not enough. When our monies are not enough and cannot buy us or our loved ones any more health. When our powers cannot change the outcomes of destructive behaviors of those we love. When our hearts have broken from grief, loss, disappointment, death. When we have witnessed or experienced the frustration of losing control over our bodies and our minds. I mean, it's a frightening place as you lose some of this control that you work so hard to have. And it's a moment in such moments that our faith is put to the test. When then is our utter dependence? Can we then, will we then cry out, but, but I trust in the Lord? And in this psalm, there are really two memorable descriptions of what that trust in the Lord looks like. Verse 5 Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And then in verse 15, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. To place my life and my time into the hands of God is to submit both my living and my dying into the one who is faithful and who has proven faithful. God alone can redeem and rescue my life. God's faithfulness is here symbolized by God's hand. The hand of God or the arm of God. It's it's the symbol of God's power foremost for most of us. Right? For example, God tells Moses in Exodus 3, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my mighty hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. The hand of God, the arm of God is is the power of God that can rescue us. That's what we need and what we want. We need the power of God for our redemption and for our rescue. You know, last week uh, in our Lenten FGs, some of you may have discussed the difference Uh, between stones and rocks. You know, we've been talking about stones. And the difference between a stone and a rock is that a rock is generally something much bigger and more, you know, just uh, stronger, something that you can kind of um, put your weight on, whereas a stone might be something smaller that you can throw and so on. And that's what the psalmist says. The psalmist doesn't say, God is my stone. God is my rock. God is my rock, my firmament, my fortress. God is someone I can build my life on. It's the foundation upon which I can build my house. God alone can provide the kind of safety and strength that can withstand the storms of life. And the psalmist here calls upon God to be that, to be his strong fortress, to protect him, to be a rock of refuge when all around chaos and trouble are following him. Something solid, something strong, something dependable. The psalmist doesn't sing, I am a rock, but rather, you, 
O God, are my rock. And we, and we need that in our lives. When our lives are spinning out of control, we need some solid ground to stand on, something that is unshakable, and that is God. Eight years after he wrote, I am a rock, Paul Simon wrote another song about a rock called Loves Me Like a Rock. And in it, it says, when I was a little boy and the devil would call my name, I'd say, now who do you, who do you think you're fooling? I'm a consecrated boy. I'm a singer in the Sunday choir. Oh, my mama loves me. She loves me. She gets down on her knees and hug me. She loves me like a rock. She rocks me like the rock of ages and loves me. She loves me, loves me, loves me, loves me. She loves me like a rock, right? We, we need that kind of powerful love, a love that is powerful and steady and dependable like a rock. That's one aspect of the hand of God. But there is another aspect that I want to put to you today. Henry Nouwen, in one of my all-time favorite books, The Return of the Prodigal, reflects on Rembrandt's famous painting of the same name. And in that painting, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've seen it, the prodigal son has returned and, he, and he's kneeling and the father has laid his hands on him. It's the scene of the, the Luke 15, the return of the prodigal. And, um, you know, Rembrandt's skill, so when you see the painting, your, your eyes are immediately drawn and just kind of captivated by the hands of the father. That, that's the center of that painting. The, all you can see are the hands. And it's, it's just lit. You know, it's kind of dark all around, but it, the hands are just, just bright, and your eyes are just immediately drawn to it. And um, that's the hands, right? It's, it's the hands of welcome. It's the hands of forgiveness. We understand that story. Uh, but Henry Nouwen, notice that the two hands of the father are dissimilar. And he offers this insight. He says, the father is not simply a great patriarch. He is mother as well as father. He touches the son with a masculine hand and a feminine hand. And this is his great insight. When, when, When you look at the two hands, you see that one hand looks a little smoother than the other hand. Like one hand looks more like a a man's hand and the other one looks more like a woman's hand. He holds, she caresses. He confirms, she consoles. He is indeed God in whom both manhood and womanhood, fatherhood and motherhood are fully present. That gentle caressing right hand echoes for me the words of the prophet Isaiah. Can a woman forget her baby at the breast? Feel no pity for the child she has born? Even if these were to forget, I shall not forget you. Look, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. That is the hand of God. Rembrandt and Nouwen and the psalmist recognize our need for the strong hand of God to rescue us from danger, to have enough power and authority to redeem us. But at the same time, they saw the equal need for the compassionate hand of God to embrace us. According to Luke, the very last words Jesus spoke on the cross was the first first part of Psalm 31, verse 5, to which Jesus added the word, Father. Father, into your hands I commit my life. Into your hands, I commit my life. Those are good last words. 
don't know if you've ever thought about what might you want to say as your last words. I hope you've seen or will get a chance to see the documentary um, about Mr. Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, in case you don't know, uh, Fred Rogers, one of the, uh, the first great uh, pioneers of children's television, uh, he was also an ordained Presbyterian minister. Uh, woohoo. Um, <laughs> he was actually, or, that was his ministry, that was the call to which he was ordained, believe it or not, um, by the PCUSA. Um, now, the documentary didn't really focus that much on his, uh, the faith aspect of his life, but I believe uh, he was really driven and grounded in that ministry, in his work, by his faith. I mean, that, that was his ministry. Um, you know, watching the documentary, I have to tell you, um, his goodness, uh, I, I really felt shame watching it. Like, his goodness just made me feel like just, wow, <laughs> that, is, that is what goodness looks like. And I thought, I'm so far removed from that. Um, it was really powerful. Um, now, because I realize how careless I've been uh, in my own life about the things that I watch, the things that I listen to, uh, the things that I read. I mean, he was so concerned for what children were watching on TV um, that you know, that he, he wanted to offer them something that would foster goodness. You know, like we, we take, we, we don't care that you know, kids are watching you know, these violent cartoons, for example, and we think it's funny when you know, somebody throws a pie at a clown and, you know, like, ha-ha. But he thought, no, that's, that's not good. That, that's not encouraging or nurturing goodness in children. And so he wanted to show that where he, he could do that. And again, I just thought, wow, that's... And, and the, thing, the, the thing about that's amazing with him is that, um, for me, he proved, at least for a time, that goodness um, is possible. Right? That even on television, uh, that goodness is possible. Um, now, toward the end of the movie, his wife Joanne reflects uh, on his last days. And she said that one of the last things that he said, and maybe the very last thing he said to her, was this. Am I a sheep? Am I a sheep? Now, she understood that he was referring to the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, right? Remember in the parable, Jesus uh, in the parable, there's a separation between the sheep and the goats, and the sheep who've done all these good things uh, enter into the joy uh, forever, uh, whereas the goats are cast into the uh, utter darkness and so on. Um, at the end of his life, he wondered, am I a sheep? And she told her dying husband, if anyone is a sheep, you are. It's true. You know? By any measure, he was a good sheep. He was a good man. He did a lot of good works. He helped a lot of people. He was generous. He was gentle. He was kind. You know? I think we, we should aspire to be like him in, in, in those regards. In fact, you know, it's, it's really hard, and a lot of people doubt it, like, that such goodness and kindness was possible without any hint of irony or you know, being self-conscious. I mean, he, he really was an amazing person. And, um, you know, maybe at the end of your lives, if, if someone were to tell you, you know, yeah, you've been, you lived, you've, been a good, you've been a good man. You've been a good woman. You've lived a good life. Those are good words to hear. Now, it's unclear to me how that question was being asked 
and what other things she may have said and so on. And so maybe for me, as I heard that, maybe it's another sign of his remarkable humility that he didn't recognize his own goodness. And that's it. But I also wonder, because I found that question a little bit sad, that at the end of a remarkable life, he asked for reassurance from his wife that he'd been a good, faithful person. Now again, I hope we're all striving to live a life that is good and a blessing to others. But in the end, our goodness does not save us. You see, the psalmist here makes no promise to do better. He only trusts God. That's it. I hope that when it's my time to go, I will not wonder if I've been good enough. I know that I will not have been good enough. I know that now. Surely I will know that more at the end. But I hope I can have enough faith and enough mind to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And into your hand, I commit my life. Let me remind you that we trust God not only to deliver us from death, because sometimes that is not always possible. Whether old age or illness, violence or accidents, none of us will escape death. And so while we want to and need to trust God in this life to rescue us from temptation, danger, and indifference, we also need the absolute trust, the utter dependence that God will save us through death in the resurrection. Jesus had absolute trust in God in death as he did in life. And it seems to me that's how it usually goes. We die as we lived. And I think that that trust in God in our final moments can only come as we live our lives today with the same kind of trust. To commit your life into God's hand is to acknowledge both the power of God who is a power over death and can bring you to eternal life as well as the compassion of God whose love and mercy and forgiveness makes that eternal life possible. One of our elders uh, said recently that sometimes in prayer, he just wants to sit there and to be held by God. Right? That this prayer is instead of all the words, just to sit there and just to experience just being held by the arms of God. Reminded me of uh, Michelangelo's great sculpture, the, uh, the Pieta, in which you see that the broken body of Jesus just being held by his mother Mary. Simply being held. In our griefs, our brokenness, our depression, our doubt, sometimes we, we just need the hand of God to hold us. Without words, without answers, without even a resolution, just held in our broken state. But to know that you are being held in the hand of the powerful and compassionate God, that that is enough. There are times when that's what we need more than anything else because there is nothing else we can give or receive. There are times of distress and discouragement when words can offer no solace, when explanation means nothing. But there is comfort in being held. And God's hand, 
is gentle enough. God's hand is strong enough to hold you in joy and in sorrow. It's into those hands that Jesus committed his life. And we too, and we too, can commit our lives, both our living and our dying, into those same hands. That's what faith and grace are all about. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we, we are thankful um, for the Psalms, which teach us to pray as we are, not as we ought to be, not as we think we ought to be, but as we are. In all our joy and in all of our brokenness, God, we can speak every word because you know every word. You are strong enough to take it and you are gentle enough to hold us. So God, we ask, especially this week, as we enter into this last week, teach us to pray, to come before you with all that we are and to trust that you are able to redeem us and to rescue us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.